0: You're listening to Accelerate Churches Podcast, located in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Thank you for joining us. We pray you leave inspired, and this message helps you build your faith. We hope you enjoy this word from our lead pastor, Ernest Grant II. So listen, I get to do a lot of cool things as a pastor, but I would tell you that one of my favorite things to be, to do pastor is to officiate wedding ceremonies. I I love it, right? There's some type of feeling that's present in the room when a couple's family is there, all these people that have made an impact in their life. It's just something amazing about it to see this beautiful mosaic of people that have impacted these couples over time. um, It's really a beautiful feeling, right? I love it from the dresses to the decoration, from the desserts to the floor. I love it all. But if I do your wedding, and I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that I'm going to do some of your weddings in here, uh, you need to know a few things. Number one, I'm going to preach Jesus hard at your wedding. Really, really hard. I'm going to point people to how the marriage is really a sign and symbol of Christ's love for the church and how husbands have to die at times like Jesus to their wills in order for them to live the way God intends it to be, right? That's, that's first, right? That's the real spiritual part. Here's the second part. After I bless the food, I'm going to spend the rest of the night on the dance floor partying. All right? I'm just letting it be known now. Like, I don't want you being judgy over me. Like, oh, look at my pastor out there. What's going to happen is I'm going to sweat profusely. So I'm going to walk over to the table and grab one of the, the towels, and I'm going to use that to wipe my head the rest of the night. I'm going to swag surf, amen? I'm going to do that, right? I will be arm in arm with you. I'm going to sing Vanessa Carlton's uh, A Thousand Miles, Out of Key, yes? And, w- and because I'm from the 2000s, when they play um, Ushers, yeah, I- I'm going to A-Town Stomp, okay? just a fair warning. Just a fair warning, just so you know, so you're not looking at me funny, right? But before the wedding bells, before the dance floor, Sarah and I are going to sit you down and have a conversation about sex. Because we know that in order for the joy of the marriage to continue post the wedding, you have to have the awkward conversation about sex. Y'all hear me today, church? And so today, I want you to know that we're going to have the talk. We're going to have the talk. This is going to be PG-13. Ms. Jerry's got the camera out, so we're good. I, I'm just playing. I'm just playing. I'm just playing. No, no, no. Put it on. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's going to be good. We're PG-13, you know, but we're going to have the talk about sex. Now, i realize that for some of you, this is the first time you have ever heard a talk about sex in the church. And if you think about the times that you learned about sex, more like more than likely, it was in a song, I told you before that I grew up around 2000, the 2000s, early 2000s hip-hop, so I learned it from the yin-yang twins. That's that's who I learned it from. I learned it from R&B groups, Drew Hill, and a myriad of other groups, right? Or you heard about sex when friends were discussing it, right? And so it seems like the culture is very loud about sex, yet the church is often very quiet about it. And and, in another way, and what one expositor said is, you know, in our culture... We have the, the church that considers it sacred, and then the culture which says, well, there's nothing particularly sacred about sex at all. Um, they, they would say, well, um, it feels amazing. It's an incessant biological need. So what's the point of denying yourself of this thing? Yet, yeah, like marriage is fine, it's okay, but it's viewed as an archaic and outdated requirement for you to have sex. In our culture, it says it doesn't make any sense at all. You should just do it because it's enjoyable and it's pleasurable. And then on the other side, the church is barely talking about it. The only talk that some of you got from the church is that people who aren't married shouldn't do it, and people that are married should do it a lot. Right? And amen, amen to a little bit of that, right? But historically speaking, it's even more complicated because... In the church, historically, there has been these folks called theologians that have had a very, very low view of sex, some of which say that sex is only for procreation, it's, it's a necessary thing that we engage in, but it's not necessarily something that we should take joy in. So we have a lot of stuff going on. So what happens is God is viewed as the suppressor of sex instead of the creator of it. And so here's the thing, here's the thing. Now, some of you have just been left, you've been wondering, like, listen, um, you have a lot of questions about sex, and you're like, man, what do you do if you've already done it? What do you do if you've been exposed to pornography already? What, What do you do if you were unwittingly exposed to sex at an early age? What do you do with that? Here's what I realized. A lot of us have questions and the church should have answers. Can you go help? That music is bothering me. A lot of people have questions, but the church should have some answers, right? We have to be vocal and biblically informed about it because the media and the culture define sex drastically different than what God has to say about it, right? So here's my big idea. Let me give you my big idea, and then we're going to jump in, okay? Sex is one of God's gifts, but to fully enjoy it, you must dispel the myths. Cat in the hat rhyme right there, but I bet you won't forget it. Bet you won't forget it. You're gonna hear that thing 75 times throughout this sermon. Point one, sex is one of God's gifts. Let's say it together so it sticks with you. One, two, three, read. Sex is one of God's gifts, but to only enjoy it, you must dispel some myths. That's great. All right, just making sure I put the comma in there. Yeah, okay. I did. I did. All right, here we go. Let's dispel myth number one. You ready? Sex is purely physical. Myth number one, sex is purely physical. Now, sex, in our, a lot of people have what I would describe as an appetite view of sex in our culture, right? Just as your stomach, which is an internal organ, push has urges and you feed it, we also have a reproductive internal and external organs that when they have urges, we need to feed them as well, right? So that's what we've taught. Whenever you have an urge, a sexual urge in particular, you need to go ahead and satisfy it because it's as natural as eating food and drinking water. Right, but let me ask you something. If it's just physical, why is it that many of people's biggest regrets in life in life revolve around sex? If it's just a physical, if it's just a physical expression, why is it so hard for people that have been sexually assaulted to shake off the effects of it? How come your parents divorce after an infidelity? How come, how come it can be so traumatic and physiologically and psychologically traumatic to, to, to be taken advantage of as a young child, right? Like, like, why is that? And so this young lady that has a bunch of dreams in chapter 3, verse 1 through 5, but once she gets to chapter, or verse 6, she says, do not awaken love before the appropriate time. Why? Because she knows that this is much more than a physical thing. Because none of those things I mentioned would be true if it was purely physical, right? And so what sex is designed by God is this. Sex is designed by God for procreation. I've told you that. Protection so that you have a healthy place to, to funnel your urges through, which is the marital bedroom. It's also created. I said pleasure already. Did I say pleasure? It, it, it is, it is, let me say that. It's for pleasure. There are, there are part of your anatomy. Is, is so that you can experience the height and the joy and the, and the love-making moment, right? So sex in many ways is God answering our call or our desire for companionship, intimacy, and to be fully known by our spouses. But sometimes we push for sex when we really want intimacy, Right? We want sex because we think it'll make us help, it'll help us be fully known, but we really just need to be fully known and loved by other people oftentimes, right? So number one, sex is not purely physical. Here's the second one. Sex is not casual. Sex is not casual, right? Right, right. You can have consensual sex. This is what our culture says. You can have consensual sex without the commitment or exclusivity. You, we live in what we could describe as a hookup culture right now, don't we? Well, all you need is a willing partner. Like, oh, you want to do this? I want to do it. Oh, cool. Well, we should be all right. Right? We, we do that. It's no, big, it's no big deal. You enjoy the moment. It's just, it's just something you do. But let me approach this before I get to the biblical sense. Let me approach this neurologically. Can I do that? Because I know I have some really super-duper smart people in where. Let's talk about this neurologically. There is a book that was not written by a... Uh, theologian, but it was actually written by a psychologist, and it's called Hooked, Hooked. And what the author suggests in this book is that when you have sex with multiple partners, you begin to mold your brain in such a way that it accepts this pattern as normal and severely damages your ability to bond in a committed relationship. Does that make sense? So in other words, you make dysfunction a regular pattern in your life and wonder why you have a a hard time committing to someone long-term. And so what happens is when you have sex, it's very similar to birth because it produces a new reality and cannot be undone. Are y'all with me? And so the reason that God wants to protect you from this is not because sex is bad, but because he knows that sex is so good. In the words of Tim Keller, right? He knows that it's so good that he's trying to protect you from harming yourself. Here's why. Because he knows that there's not a condom big enough to protect your soul from what will happen when you begin having sex outside of the marriage. And one of the examples of this is somebody would say, well, pastor, that sound, what, what happens is I, what I've been taught is you have these things called soul ties. Have these soul ties where each time you have sex with a partner, you... Take a little piece of them and you carry it around with you. But let me just tell you, that's not biblical. <laughs> let, me, let me just help somebody. Uh, soul ties are not biblical. If you're in Christ, your soul is only tied to Jesus. Let me help somebody. Let me, let me help somebody. First For my theologians, 1 Corinthians 6.16 talks about how your body is united, not your soul united to others. Right. But what ends up happening is what we call soul ties is actually like these marriage type of feelings that happen when you have sex with somebody. That's not your spouse, because you begin to develop this sense of jealousy and you begin to develop this sense of like feeling like obligated that that person has to respond to you and talk to you. What happens is you get marital ties when you have sex outside of that, but you don't have the legal covenant. What happened was you entered into a contract in that moment where the agreement was that we would be mutually beneficial for each other. Then after it was over, you were expecting covenant benefits. When in actuality, a covenant is something that doesn't is not broken. It's like love and law. Are y'all hearing me today? So in other words, when you get married, you're getting covenant where this person is agreeing to be with you and to be one with you. But when you sell yourself short and have sex with someone that's not your spouse, you expect covenant benefits when you're only getting contract philosophy. Are y'all with me today, church? So what I'm saying is, is that there there are no soul ties. But it can feel like you're experiencing marital ties when you do that. Are, you, are y'all with me? Let me? Here's the third one. Here's the third one. Myth number three, sex is the best part of life. Myth number three. Some of us right now are not having sex because we're trying to live for Jesus, and we think that we are missing out because sex is supposed to be the very most important thing in life. Right? But I want you to know this, that if you looked at Matthew 19, 9, Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God, which is him expanding his rule and reign and authority over all the world. And he talks about how there's this group of people that are in the family of God called eunuchs. Eunuchs are people who didn't marry or are not married and are therefore are not having sex. But he's saying that they are considered, um, they, they, they use their energies to exclusively serve God and his kingdom. So what he's saying here, is that ultimately the greatest joy we can have in life is being a part of God's family, not having sex. Because sex is temporary. Marriage is temporary. These are not eternal realities. They only point to a great eternal reality. So marriage points to how Jesus will pursue after you, love you, chase after you, and, and can, is considerate of you. Sex points to the joy that we're going to have in that in that moment when we meet Him in eternity, or when He changes your life around. These are not the greatest joys in life. The greatest joy in life is knowing that your eternal destiny is settled because of what Jesus did on the cross of Calvary. Somebody needs to know that today. So. So those are your those are your three myths. Let's jump in now. Can we do that? Can we jump in that? All right. So we've been in a series in this little small book called The Song of Songs or The Song of Solomon, right? Uh, it's been a lot of fun. This is a love story or a duet between two couples. And so the first few weeks, we were just talking a lot about dating, dating with luggage, uh, when it's time to let a relationship go. And today, uh, we talked a little bit about courtship. So today, we are moving closer toward the wedding and the marriage night. And the honeymoon night. Amen, somebody. And so what we see is in chapter 6 through 11, what we get a glimpse of is the wedding day. I'm not going to read it because it's a really long chapter and I'm trying to uh, make my way through it. Uh, but, but it's really, really beautiful. The first thing that happens is we meet Solomon and Solomon has 60 groomsmen. Shout out to that. That's a big wedding, somebody, right? And, and, and his wife was like, yo, who is that? You know, coming up, I see the cloud or the pillar of smoke, and the pillar of smoke in, in chapter 3, verses 6 through 11, is, is representative of how the children of Israel were led by God through a pillar of smoke in the book of Exodus, and it's a sign to how God is going to lead them through this marriage time. Are y'all with me? And so, and so they have this wedding, Solomon pulls up in his limo right? He's got his limo. It's adorned in precious wood and gold and silver. And then his mother is there. His mother takes the crown off of her head and puts it on the head of her son. It's a beautiful moment, right? And I think it's especially beautiful with, with moms. Moms, I love you. Like, I love you. And it's, I know it's some sometimes very difficult for you to take the back seat, particularly when it comes to you're giving your sons away, right? But let me just tell you, it's important. He's grown. He, he's grown. He's grown now, right? Now, now you are, you played a vital role in raising that boy, giving him wisdom, putting him through school and doing a myriad of things. But if you continue to offer unsolicited advice, it might hurt your relationship with him and others, right? Are y'all hearing me? Okay. Let me, let me go on. Let me go on. So I said to you that they had 60 groomsmen, which means they had a pretty big wedding. And maybe I should give you a little a word of advice on wedding planning. Can I do that for a second? Like, I know that some of you are really, really excited. You're like, oh, man, I want to have a huge wedding and all that. My fear is that some of you will spend money you don't have to have a big wedding you cannot afford and then put a lot of strain on your marriage later because of a poor decision that you made in your engagement. Are y'all with me? See, the wedding industry tells you that you need pricier flowers and you need fancier cakes and you need a brand name dress and you need more guests and you need a late night food truck. I, I, I hear that. And if you, if you had the money to do that and you think that's good stewardship, OK, not, not knocking that at all. But I just want to encourage you towards simplicity because wedding planning is stressful. It's hard and it will put a huge strain on you during a time when you're really supposed to be spending more energy into your wedding and your marriage rather. See, what I find is a lot of people want the, the, want the, the big wedding and all that. And again, I'm not knocking that, but they end up in big debt. And then when, the, when that bill needs to be paid every month, they find that their wedding or their marriage has a lot more stress on it than necessary. And so what I'm saying is, in this season, maybe it might be wise and prudent to put energies in your marriage, purchasing your home, and preparing for life post our I do's. All the, all the women in look, looking at me like, you sinning. You are a sinner, Pastor. You are a sinner. I'm trying to help somebody. I'm trying to help somebody. I... I'm I have heard of couples that have gotten divorced before they even paid their marital debt off, their wedding debt off. i am just encourage you, it's nothing wrong with going to the justice of peace and doing something later. Let me just say, it's nothing wrong with that. That's honoring the God. God honors that covenant just as well. Let me go on here. Let me go on. Let me go on. So after, so, so verses chapter three, verse six through 11, they had all this restraint. And now we get to chapter four. This is when we're going to have the talk. Is that all right? Can we, can we do that talk now? All right. If this is too much, again, the email is jcbarn at acceleratechurch.tv. Just send it on through. So after the wedding, months and months of restraint, the couple finally makes it to the bedroom. I mean, he's got the, he's got the rose petals on the bed. He's got the soft music playing. They are excited to come together for the first time. I'm assuming they're both nervous. And this is what he says in chapter four, verse one. He says, how beautiful are you, my darling? How beautiful are you, my darling? So he starts at her head. I want you to notice that her veil is still on. So she's still dressed and he starts to, he starts to compliment her. He says, baby, your eyes are beautiful and radiant. He said, they captivate me. He says in the second verse of, he says in the second half of verse one, he says, your hair is like a flock of goats descending from Mount Gilead. Boy, this man got game. (laughs) This man know how to talk. What he's saying is, in that time, Hebrew women normally wore their hair in a bun. So he's saying that you took out the bun and you let it down and your hair just fell so beautifully, right? He said, here's verse two. I love, this is my favorite part. He says, your teeth are like flocks of sheep. And each of them has their own twin. What he's saying is, baby, in a time where you don't have any orthodontists, in a time where there's no dentists, you have all your teeth. And not only that, you have those, each, t- each tooth has a twin. I love it. He's saying this is a big deal, right? He said, your baby, your breath is fresh. Your teeth are all there. He says, I I love your lips and your cheeks, the ones on your face, you sinners. Uh, Your eyebrows. Eyebrows. And he continues. He says, your neck. He's making it down to her neck. He says, your your neck, girl, it's like the Tower of David. (laughs) What he's saying is the Tower of David was one of the most noble and beautiful places in all of Jerusalem. And so what he's saying is, baby, you are elegant and you are beautiful. So this is what I want you to notice, married couples. Here's what I want you to see. Before sex ever becomes physical, it just start being emotional. He's staring at her. He, she still has her veil on. Think about how intimate it, this is. He says that he says in her eyes, in his eyes, that she's flawless. Now, is he is he flattering her? Is he exaggerating? No, no, I think he's trying to help her see herself in the way that she that he sees her. Right? A lot of times, a lot of times we a lot of times I know about young ladies is are they are they struggle with insecurities, they struggle with how they look and, and things like that. But what he's saying is, baby, in your eyes, you are beautiful. You are you are amazing. Here's point number one. In marriage, point number one, in marriage. There must be emotional intimacy before there's physical intimacy. I want you to see heavy on the in a marriage. In a, in a marriage, okay? Right? So nothing, let me just tell you, nothing kindles romance in a marriage like a husband that touches his, his wife's mind and heart before he touches her body. And, and the problem is, is that we often do this in reverse order. We touch the body prematurely and expect to respond immediately and passionately and what we fail to realize is sexuality or your wife's sexual drive is often sparked through compliments or nurturing her mind before you enjoy her body. Is that good? Okay. Well, you're beautiful today. All your all your teeth are there, girl. Is that good? Your teeth are all there. Girl, your neck looked like Tower David, girl. (laughs) that was a good transition. That was a good transition. Here's what I've noticed. Is that one of the ways that you can cultivate emotional intimacy with your wife is by helping her do, uh, helping her life become easier. In other words, helping her address the biggest problems that she has in life. Right, let me let you into the Grant household real quick. It's PG. Y'all, y'all can know about this. And so my, my, my wife and I have a morning routine. We get up early, but we get the kids early up at about 6.45. Sarah goes upstairs and gets them ready. I go downstairs and get the lunch and the breakfast and get them dressed so that when she's ready to go to work, she can just go That da- She can just take them out, right? But I noticed I started doing something different. I started to do all those things. Then I started to put their shoes on and get the car ready. Come on. I would turn that next level. That's next level. And so when she yells downstairs, she says, kids, put your shoes on. And they say, we got them on already. And then she says, uh, put your jackets on. They're on already. Finish eating your breakfast. We're almost done. Baby, warm up the car. I got it taken care of. Right? Now, now let me say, I'm, I'm not a superlative of hers, but sometimes I mess up. Sometimes I don't do that, okay? But a lot of times I do, right? Or like a lot of times I, I don't want you to go home and be like, my Pastor Ern does this for his sir? I mess up, all right? I mess up. I had a trip on, on Wednesday. I just left the house. I just left. It, was, it wasn't right, right? Right? But here, here's the thing. What I noticed, husbands, what you have to realize is that your wife will often feel encouraged to have sex with you When you do things that makes her life easier, she don't just like you or because you are so physically attractive and all that. She likes you and she steps in to to give you some appreciation, some physical appreciation Sometimes when you help her with the things in her life that hurt the most. Does that make sense? Right? So, So what's happening is a compliment arouses her soul and that becomes a means of arousing her body. Does that make sense today? And so here's another thing, like sometimes you have to figure out what is the best way to minister to your wife, right? What is the best way? For some people, it's compliments. For others, for other wives, you're like, listen, I, I just want you to hold me and touch me in a physical way but not a sexual way. I know I'm I'm learning this. Ten years in, I'm 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 learning this, right? When my wife would just want to lay on me, I would misinterpret it sometime as her desiring physical intimacy. But it wasn't her wanting physical intimacy as it was if she just wanted to be, she wanted to be made whole and feel the touch. That was a game changer for us. Because your wife needs to know, fellas, that she is not just a means of your sexual gratification, but that you love her completely and wholly. Does that make sense today? That makes sense. Okay. So it doesn't start in the bed. It starts in the mind. Okay? It starts in the mind. Now, it's about to get spicy here. Somebody say spicy. So verse 5, okay? It, this is in the text. I just want you to know. Verse 5, right? He says, your breasts are like two fawns. Twin gazelles that what does it say? Feed among the lilies. All right. All right. All right. I like how Pastor James Robertson puts this. You know, so so when you see gazelles, I don't know if you've ever been in the woods before. I'm I'm more of an indoorsman, uh, so, but but I'm learning to do the outdoors thing. And and what I know about gazelles is that when you approach them, you have to approach them very, very carefully, very, very gingerly, and very, very quietly. Okay, so, so here, here's, here's number two. Here's point number two, gentlemen. When you approach your wife, I mean, how you approach your wife sexually matters, right? Now, one of the problems of this generation is that we have been informed about sex too much through pornography, right? I want you to know that the plot lines are fake. Sexual encounters that happen don't happen with all the lights on and a full face of makeup. That's just not true, right? I can tell you a lot of things about pornography that, about why you need to stop doing that if you're watching it. Number one, it makes you view your wife or other, uh, the opposite sex as a, uh, a, a, as, as a group of body parts. They become a commodity. It destroys your intimacy with your wife. And what it ultimately does is it will have you thinking that your, however you relieve yourself is the means of satisfaction other than your spouse. Okay, now let me just go on here, right? So it doesn't happen. How you approach your wife really, really matters, right? Now just think about it. It's not that our wives don't want to have sex with us, but it's that they've been dealing with complainative co-workers all day. They've been dealing and taking care of children all day, watching Peppa Pig and, and doing all type of things. Cleaning up the house multiple times, so when she doesn't, when she, when you come home, she doesn't want you being all rough with her from the gate. Now, because she is not just a means of satisfying our satisfying our pornographic fantasies. Right now, now some of your wives are different. They enjoy um, the more the more rough approach. Okay, and if that's the case, good. Take them to counseling and get them. No, I'm just playing. Just playing. Just playing. Just playing. Just playing. Just playing. Right? All of our, our wives are different. Our wives are different. Maybe your wife wants to be ran up on like a lion. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe that's your thing, right? Maybe that. Maybe that's your thing, right? There's a lot of different things I can say, but I'll keep it very PG. I'll say now. Now, what, what might happen is as you move forward, she might want more of an aggressive touch, right? But you have to be careful how you approach your wife. Like this. All right. Let me let me say this because I, I preached fifty-seven minutes last week and it was awful. And so let me. I'm trying to. I'm trying to. Narrow, I'm trying to break bring, bring the plane down. Let, let me just talk about like some of you are going to go on your honeymoon and you've been holding out on sex and all that type of thing. Uh, for some of us, your honeymoon sex is going to be amazing. For others of you, your sex on a honeymoon is going to be painful, it's going to be weird, and it's going to feel really, really uncomfortable. And let me just say that either of those is fine, right? Maybe I don't, like, the way my man Solomon is talking in this verse, like he's talking about climbing the mountains of Gilead and all that, he's anticipating that it's going to be a great night. But but what can happen is everybody's marital night or honeymoon night is not the same. And that's okay because you will learn your spouse's body over time. Does that make sense? Like your drives are different. Usually the men's drives is a little bit more. Uh, but what I want to encourage you is this, is one of the most important things you can do in the scripture is have sex with your spouse. In many ways, having sex becomes like a spiritual discipline. Because it says in 1 Corinthians 6 that Paul encourages married couples not to stay apart too long. Why? Because Satan may come in and tempt them. So in other words, like, you have to discipline yourself to have sex with your spouse through hard times for a few reasons. Number one, he doesn't want you to be enticed by that coworker. He doesn't want you to feel the lure of pornography. And what Satan tries to do is because he knows that sex is how people deepen relationships or how married couple deepen relationships, he wants you to do whatever he can in order for that to be disrupted. Does that make sense today, church? All right, so there's got, here's, here's the last one. Here's the last one, and the, and the band can play. Here's the last one. The joy of sex is inexhaustible. The joy of sex is inexhaustible. Somebody said, oh, my, I love that. You're going to love this point then. You're going to love this point. Now, now, Solomon, remember, he has a green thumb. So this dude built forests, right? And a good portion of his and what he did was he built forests and gardens in Jerusalem. This dude was a botanist. And what he does in these sets of verses is he describes his wife's body as a garden in the middle of a desert, right? So what he's saying is, wife, you are a dream garden. I love your body. In other words, what he's saying is, I want to discover it over the course of a lifetime. And I would just encourage you men, women, like here's the thing. If if sex becomes boring, it's because you are not seeing it as a lifetime pursuit to deepen your relationship and to understand the different nuances that can happen when you discover each other. Does that make sense? He's saying that, baby, your body is the source of immense joy. He's like, it's bringing me joy and excitement few months ago, I think it was about two years ago at this point, uh, my wife and I uh, went to the National Museum of African American History in D.C. It was a really, really amazing. It's so many, I think it's like three or four floors. Um, and we're told that the average visitor stays in there about six hours. Why? Because it's a treasure trove of history and encouragement. It's a great time. And in the same way, that's kind of how our sex lives should be. It's something that we develop and Something that we cultivate, something that we learn more and more about each other over time. And so I just don't want you to have a boring sex life. God wants you to have enjoyable sex. But in order to have enjoyable sex, you got to go back to the big idea. Sex is one of God's greatest gifts. But to enjoy it, you have to dispel the myths. And I know we've been talking about sex this time and I got a lot that I can say, but I'll just say this. If you're not having sex today, let me just tell you, it's a beautiful thing and praise God for it. But ultimately, it's an expression of the joy that we're had that we can have with Jesus. And that climactic lovemaking moment, that joy, that ecstasy, that passion that you feel, is what God wants us to feel with Him. In the in, in the sense that He wants us to have an excitement about Him, a love for Him, to know that we're fully known and fully seen by Him. And that's part of what the gospel is, isn't it? that God fully knows us. He fully knows that we are sinners. He fully knows that we have strayed away from the path. He fully knows that we have all type of quirks and idiosyncrasies that are not in line with him. But he left ecstasy to come down into history so that you and I could ultimately experience that same ecstasy in eternity. So I just want you to know today that sex is not the greatest gift. Jesus is the greatest gift. He's the greatest gift. He loves you, and he wants you to be a part of his family. He wants you to know him. He wants you to be a part of his family, grow with him. And so I'm finished up, and I'm going to pray, but why don't you bow your head and close your eyes? I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray for the singles that are living holy and restraining themselves. I'm going to pray for the married couples that may be experiencing some intimacy challenges right now. And then I want to invite you into the family of God. Father, I thank you so much for... Goodness and your mercy and your grace. Thank you that you love us with a never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love. Lord, I thank you for my singles in this place that are restraining themselves from sex because they simply want to honor you. They want to live for you, Jesus. They they, they want to do things that are pleasing for you. I pray that you will strengthen them, encourage them, remind them of the love you have for them, and that even in this, even in the restraint that you're getting the glory from it. Lord, I pray for the married couples in the place that are experiencing a bunch of intimacy challenges right now, that are struggling, Lord, for various reasons, Lord. I pray that you would help them enjoy one another. And even if they're not able to have genitalia intimacy, that they will have intimacy one with another. And so, Lord, we thank you so much for them because we know that you have a plan. And ultimately, this points to a bunch of joy. And while your heads are bowed and while your eyes are closed, I just want to offer an invitation to anybody in here right now. Anybody that's far away from God and you're like, yo, I need that Jesus. I need this community of people. I need to be, I, I need to stop doing this thing on my own. And I need to connect with Jesus and learn more about him because I'm struggling by myself. If that's you today, I just want to encourage you to drop your hand in the air. I promise you we're going to embarrass you. If you want Jesus today, if you want to be a part of his family, you want to be forgiven of your sin I want to encourage you put your hand in the air let me see you we want to celebrate with you we want to celebrate anybody in the building today anybody we're good everybody's good in here I see okay all right so father we thank you so much for your love your kindness your graciousness to us we pray that you will be with us in the rest of our gathering in Jesus name everybody that agree with that say amen amen come on can we put our hands together for Jesus